Welcome back to True Crime Broads. We are excited about today's guest. We have a true crime author on. His name is John Leak. And today he's going to tell us about his fantastic new book. It's called The Meaning of Malice on the Trail of the Black Widow of Highland Park. John, thank you so much for joining us on True Crime Broads. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great, great title, by the way. Kind of a slight Frank Sinatra, <laughs> kind of 50s era title. I like it. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, hey, listen, John, if you don't mind, before we get into the book, tell us about yourself. I know you've got a really interesting background and you're local from the Dallas area. Yeah, I I grew up in, in um, this uh, suburb. It's an independent township in the middle of Dallas County called Highland Park. I grew up in Highland Park and um, I then graduated from Highland Park, <clears throat> excuse me, I graduated from Highland Park High School, went to college in Boston and grad school in Boston. And then at the end of my um, graduate school studies, I got a scholarship to study in Vienna, Austria, um, went to Vienna, fell in love with the city. And while I was there, I started tinkering around with writing a true crime story set in Vienna. I just found the old city of Vienna to be a very interesting setting for a crime story. And I stumbled across one. It was one hell of a story. It was uh, about a, a Viennese serial killer. The FBI <clears throat> has characterized him. His name is Jack Unterweger. The FBI characterized Jack Unterweger is one of the only known serial killers in history who uh, did his depredations against against women. He murdered women um, transatlantically. He murdered several women in the continent of on the continent of Europe, and then he got on a plane and flew to Los Angeles in the summer of 1991, and he murdered three women in L.A. So this is very complex, multi-jurisdictional story. And while I was researching that first book, I got to know a uh, forensic expert who was a physical evidence expert at the Los Angeles County Crime Lab. Her name is Lynn Harold. I got to be friends with Lynn, and I've consulted with her repeatedly over the years um, about cases I'm working on. <clears throat> Following my first book, I wrote a, about this Viennese serial killer maniac. I wrote a second book about the mysterious disappearance, and ultimately it was revealed to be a death of a young professional hockey player in the Austrian Alps. It was a real mystery as to what had happened to this guy. I ended up investigating that case for almost two years to figure it out. Very eerie kind of Twilight Zone story. Well, in the year 2007, I got a call from an old friend of mine in Highland Park saying, did you hear the news that Sandra Bridewell has been arrested in North Carolina on charges of aggravated identity theft? Well, Sandra Bridewell was someone who I knew growing up. I actually lived on the same street as Sandra. I was friends with her daughter, Catherine, who was my age, Sandra had three children. Catherine and I were pals. This is the early 80s. <clears throat> so 
Sandra, I didn't realize it at the time. She was this beautiful, mysterious, kind of raven-haired woman who had this charisma and this, this kind of mesmerizing charm about her. I didn't realize it at the time in the early 80s because no adult told me, but she was a notorious woman in Highland Park who'd fallen under suspicion from committing multiple murders. Um, and then in the year 1987, D Magazine, which is our kind of local monthly magazine about events and cultural things and gossip in, in the great city of Dallas, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm contending with a cold, D Magazine did a cover story on Sandra called The Black Widow. And when I first saw this, it would have been my sophomore year of high school, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, immediately I realized that although the reporters of this long feature are not overtly stating it, I mean, they're clearly intimating that Sandra might have committed multiple murders. And that kind of has haunted me ever since. Of course, it wasn't that easy to write about this because she was a suspected serial killer but for reasons that I explore in my book, the Dallas police and the Dallas County Medical Examiner could never quite get up to speed with her, that she she was never even subjected to a difficult interview, much less ever being arrested. However, when she was arrested in North Carolina in 2007, her pattern of behavior with this elderly lady to whom she represented herself as a Christian minister in order to move in with the elderly lady. It was this same highly manipulative, deceptive conduct that she'd fallen under suspicion for in the early 80s. Only in the early 80s, the, the suspicion was, was murder. And so once I, I, I saw, pardon me, once I saw that Sandra had fallen under suspicion for this, and it is a felony, aggravated identity theft. I began to intensively research this story. And it was a multi-year journey, but I've just recently um, published my, um, my book about it. Your book's amazing, by the way. We loved it. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And um, when you, when that must have been shocking to you in high school, first of all, to see her on the cover of D, but then later in life in 2007, I know what that's like. You grow up with people, you're friends with them. You're going to remember their parents and you're going to remember the intense experiences you had as a kid. Things just seem a little more intense when you're a little kid. Like I'm sure seeing her walking through the house and really remembering what she was like and how she was different from other moms. And that just must've been amazing in 2007 when this fell in your lap again. Well, and I, I would say, and I want to emphasize this point, Sandra wasn't like other moms. <clears throat> she, she was a particularly vivid, striking mom, and she didn't really act like other moms. You know, most moms seemed kind of harried with their kids, you know, carpool and having to prepare dinner. Sandra was always dressed to the nine. She would come occasionally sauntering in and 
always looked like a million bucks, like she was dressed up to go to a ball or something. And she had this kind of mesmerizing way of kind of captivating you. She had these big brown eyes that she would kind of hold your gaze with. And even as a 13, 14 year old boy, I remember thinking there's something without understanding it, but just thinking there's, there's something really different about this woman. She has this smoldering sensuality about her. And I think that mm. that was, that was her, her primary way of presenting herself in her younger years when she got a bit older, as happens to all of us, her looks began to fade. She shifted her game from being um, a, a sort of seductive suburban noir femme fatale to being a Christian minister and, and missionary. Um, so she really changed up her game quite a bit in terms of her outward persona, but um, similar um, uh manipulative and uh, deceptive way of comporting herself. Right. So when did you first realize that maybe this lady had killed some people? When did that occur to you? Well, that was clearly intimated. <clears throat> I mean, well, more than intimated. I mean, it was it was presented as a matter of grave suspicion in the 1987 D Magazine cover story. I mean, because she'd never been arrested, she had left Dallas under this huge cloud of suspicion in 1986. So the year before the piece was published, the authors were were cautious. But, I mean, the implication was clear. It, it, it looks like, I mean, <clears throat> in this affluent suburb with one of the lowest homicide rates in the world, Sandra was the last known contact of three people who were later found shot in the head. So, I mean, just as a matter of kind of common sense, I mean, like how often does that happen in an affluent suburb? where you were the last known contact of someone who's later found shot, not yeah. one time, but three times in a 10 year period. So there was grave suspicion that was already expressed in that 1987 article. But the heart of the story, the thing that is always uh, confounded Highland Park society, and then as Sandra then moved and became something of a socialite in, in San Francisco and her, her past in Dallas was later discovered, everybody in San Francisco is equally confounded. Why was she never arrested? And as, as the, that question is often framed by some of Sandra's ex-friends, you know, how did she get away with this? Right. Because in the minds of many of Sandra's peers, they, I mean, I was oftentimes presented with women who just had no doubt that Sandra had committed these crimes. At least that that was the belief that they expressed to me, which that you know, thereby prompting them to ask the question, you know, how did she get away with this? And 
So this is the heart of the mystery that that I explored. And, and I would say that the main focus of my investigation was going back and looking at two violent deaths. Um, one was Sandra's first husband, who was found shot to death in his bed, in his marital bed at home. Um, Sandra told the police that they had been estranged. She had been sleeping in another room, um, did not hear the gunshot, did not know exactly when it happened in the course of the night. All she said that she knew was that she went into his into the master bedroom in the morning and, and there he was lying in a pool of blood and in their matrimonial bed. The Dallas County Medical Examiner ruled that a suicide. And that's one that I take a very close look at. I was able to obtain the original death scene photographs taken by the Dallas police. And I had those photographs analyzed by contemporary forensic scientists. And um, well, I, I won't spoil the suspense. Um, I'll leave you hanging on that. Um, seven, seven years later, Sandra in the interim remarried and it's kind of an interesting social element of this story. She married a man named Bobby Bridewell and that was the surname that she stuck with, even though she, over the years, married four different times and had multiple aliases over the years. She stuck with the name Bridewell. It's sort of an elegant name. There's also an irony <laughs> in that name, Bridewell. I was um, that yeah. yeah yeah she's not writing very well well yeah. not writing very well well bobby was this he's kind of the quintessence of a good time very socially gifted um wonderful sense of humor everybody loved bobby i i would say in the year that sandra married him 1978 Bobby was probably the most popular man in Dallas society. He came from an old Tyler, Texas oil family, but he himself had gotten into hotel development. He's still well known in Dallas as the developer of the mansion on Turtle Creek. And wow. there is still a nice. um, there's still a, a very charming Bobby loved racehorses. And so there's this equestrian statue to this day is in front of the mansion if, if you're entering the the restaurant and bar uh, a commemor a commemorative statue to bobby everybody loved bobby um he married sandra he too found her very seductive and charming um unfortunately bobby um his his sort of glory days as a hotel developer and as newly married to Sandra, were not to last. He, about 18 months after they married, he was diagnosed with lymphoma. And he um, was then referred to something of a society oncologist at the Baylor University Medical Center, a man named Dr. John Bagwell, who also lived here in Highland Park, his kids went to Highland Park. I actually knew his son. And Dr. Bagwell, just as an example of how close I am to the characters in the story, Dr. Bagwell was also my grandmother's cancer doctor. And 
So he treated Bobby, but unfortunately, um, Bobby succumbed to his lymphoma in the spring of 1982. And even at the time that Bobby was languishing in hospital, a lot of people perceived that Sandra seemed to take perhaps an undue interest in his treating physician. And um, about two months after Bobby died, uh, Dr. John Bagwell's wife, a lady named Betsy, she was found shot to death in her car at Lovefield Airport here in Dallas. And once again, Sandra Bridewell was her last known contact. Um, that raised enormous suspicion in Highland Park society that Sandra had done it, that she was making a play for Dr. Bagwell and just simply wanted to get Betsy out of the picture. That was the widely held suspicion in Highland Park. But again, for reasons that were very mysterious and confounding, the Dallas police and the medical examiner just didn't seem to get the memo on this. And very, wow. very, very quickly ruled this case yet another suicide. So that was yet another focus of my investigation was not only obtaining all of the original police and medical examiner files in the matter of Betsy Bagwell, but also obtaining copies of the death scene photos and having those analyzed by contemporary forensic scientists. So I, I would say without, oh, awesome. without the, you know, doing a bunch of plot spoiling that that was the focus of my investigation, which took me several years. Um, following Betsy's murder, I just gave it away. Uh, Betsy's purported suicide. Um, Sandra, you know, once again, was not arrested for that. About two years after Betsy was found shot, a young man from Oklahoma City, or I should say Edmond, which is a suburb of Oklahoma City, he just arrived in Dallas, Texas the day before and was driving down our street, Lorraine Avenue in Highland Park. He's driving down the street and there, standing in the front yard, watering her rose bushes is this beautiful raven haired woman um, and he just feels drawn to her and so he parks his vehicle and gets out and he goes and he talks to her and she seemed very charmed to make his acquaintance a whirlwind romance ensued a few months afterwards she told him she was pregnant which is a very important element in this story. He believed her and thought he was doing the honorable thing. <clears throat> they married in December of 1984. And then on the eve of their one year wedding anniversary, you know, 364 days later, the eve of their one year wedding anniversary, he was found shot to death in his car. Again, Sandra was the yeah. last contact. Um, so at this point, the cops are thinking, okay, <laughs> all right, this is getting pretty suspicious. Um, and this guy clearly wasn't suicide. He was shot twice in such a way that it couldn't have been self-inflicted. 
Sandra becomes the prime suspect, but once again, she gets away with it. Wow. Now, where did Sandra get her money? Because Highland Park, San Francisco, those have always been expensive places to live. Was this through husbands? Did she have her own money? <laughs> Life insurance, death benefits. Oh, gosh, that's wow. Horrible. That That's awful. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah. Unreal. Unbelievable. Well, I know that our listeners are going to absolutely love hearing from you and want to get your book. And um, there is a website dedicated to John's book called meaningofmalice.com. We'll link everything in our show notes and on our social media. And also, uh, John has written lots of books. So quite a few, like five books, six books, John? This is my fourth book. Oh, okay. And if you want to read about all his other books and and there's links to order them. It, his website is author John Leake, L E A K E.com. And we'll have all that linked, like I said. But yeah, most of a lot of our listeners are local because um, we started off covering the case of Missy Beaver's murder in Ellis County, which, as you probably know, is south of Dallas. So a lot of our listeners are local and even our worldwide listeners are going to be intrigued by this story. Oh yeah. Just, just wanting to figure out where all that leads that he, you know, just shared with everybody. It's, you know, I know they're going to be so excited to, to get to know the rest of what happens. It's very and, interesting. Yeah. I can't, I can't wait to hear people's feedback on this one. Well, John, thank you so much for being on. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Well, no, I'm, I'm delighted to talk to you, to you ladies. And um, I have, uh, I hope your audience um, will find this story as interesting as I have. Right. Oh, I, I did have so. a, I did have a quick question. How did you get your hands on those crime scene videos? Was that like a public records request? I mean, the photos from the crime scene from Dallas. P public records, but it, it wasn't easy. Um, <clears throat> they were initially submitted to me um, heavily redacted with whiteout. But that that wouldn't suffice. I, I I had a blood stain pattern expert who needed to see the whole thing. So it was kind of an ordeal. Um, one of one of the hardest hardest things about researching this was dealing with these bureaucracies. The FBI had a file on her as well. That that too was very very difficult through a FOIA request. Um, um, it it's, has oftentimes seemed to me that law enforcement is kind of working for her, um, it just the difficulty of obtaining <laughs> records. Um, but um, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that makes this book so unusual, you know, not only the fact that, you know, I grew up in the, in the community in which it's happening and actually knew the prime suspects, um, I, I think it's a rare case in, in which... Um, I am presenting uh, a detailed and very um, extensive argument um, with photographic evidence to substantiate my my belief, and I, I state this is this is what I believe. The evidence in this story that I've been able to unearth and to analyze compels me to believe that Sandra Bridewell is an officially undetected serial killer. And um, I believe she's still alive. Um, so again, I'm not making a declarative statement. I'm not saying that she is, 
I'm stating that based on the evidence and it's extensive that I was able to obtain and to analyze that evidence, that totality of circumstances compels me to believe that she's an officially undetected serial killer. Are those cases still open? Do you know? Oh yeah. I just wondered if police have ever reached out to you for, you know, maybe some of the work you've done in interest of uh, continuing on those investigations. Well, remember that the the Dallas County Medical Examiner ruled the first two suicides. So, I mean, when I say they're open, I mean, legally speaking, they're closed. But when you when you look at the evidence, I mean, I dare say that it's quite apparent, uh, particularly in the case of Betsy Bagwell, that this wasn't a suicide. I mean, even, right. at, even at the time, um, a medical examiner field agent noticed, noted in his report that there were blood spatters in the back seat, which was completely inconsistent with the proposition that she'd shot herself. Um, so, but those suicide rulings have have remained unchallenged. Um, in the case of Alan Rarig, the the third husband from Oklahoma, that's still an open murder case, and she remains the prime suspect. Wow! Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, everybody's gonna love love had, this. Renee had asked me earlier if uh, Sandra was still alive, and I. I wasn't sure. So I'm glad we addressed that here. Yeah. yeah. That's a wild, wild tale. And um, I vaguely, I'm about your age, John. I remember that being on the cover of D magazine back then. And um, that's really incredible to get to talk to you today about this. Yeah. And I mean, us being so, you know, we're from, I mean, I, I went to Red Oak and she was in DeSoto. So we were real close to right there at the edge of Dallas and, you know, often traveled through that area. It's just amazing to hear these kind of stories so many years later yeah one of the is. one of the colorful many colorful characters in this story is a private detective from DeSoto named William Deere Bill Deere I knew you were gonna say that I grew up with his son yes he's a very flamboyant yeah. uh charismatic you know very very yeah. entertaining interesting character anyway Sandra <clears throat> hired Bill Deere to find who murdered her husband so it was, <laughs> it, was it was uh it was a little bit confusing because Great. she wasn't she, she wasn't cooperating with the police she refused to talk to them but she really wanted bill to find out who murdered poor alan um so he i'm he, sure because he was, on, he was one of those guys that was on tv and stuff he was on talk shows i forget which i think it was a tonight show or something back in the 80s at, about the Dungeons and Dragons book that he had written. So yeah. I could see her being attracted to him as he is so charismatic and more public than your typical private investigator. Right, right. He, he got lucky on that one. He dodged a bullet, <laughs> literally. Yeah, he, he has a, an interesting uh, uh, role in this story, at which I, which I, uh, I relate. <clears throat>
That's awesome. That is awesome. I and, love it. Um, yeah, that is so cool. Yeah. So anyway, everybody out there, you've got to go pick up his book. We're going to link the Amazon link, and then you can also pick it up on um, by looking at John's website and we're going to link everything. And John, thank you again for being on the show. It was a lot of fun. We love your book and um, hopefully we'll get to talk to you again sometime. Thank <laughs> you very much. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. So do we. We'll keep in touch. Thanks, John. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.